This is Matthew Cratter from Bitcoin University. And today I wanted to talk a little bit more about how money actually scales. And we're going to be looking at gold, physical gold on the gold standard, the US dollar, and finally Bitcoin in an effort to understand how this works. So money always scales in layers. There's never just a base layer where 100% of economic activity takes place. What does this mean in practice? It means that every monetary system has a foundation or base layer on which and upon which the rest of the system is built. So for example, on the gold standard, that foundation was shiny yellow rocks that were moved between countries on boats and airplanes to settle trade imbalances. So for example, if Germany exported $100 million worth of stuff to the US and the US exported $90 million worth of stuff to Germany back in the gold standard days, that $10 million net difference would be resolved and settled by putting $10 million worth of physical gold on a boat or an airplane and moving it from, let's say, New York City to Frankfurt. Do gold bugs who advocate for a return to a gold standard actually understand that this is what they're advocate, advocating for, sending shiny yellow rocks around the world on boats and airplanes and armored trucks, because this is what you need to do to achieve true final settlement on a gold standard. If you start using IOUs and paper, you devolve into the current fiat system. So it doesn't make any sense to me to, sh to send gold bars around the, around the globe in the mostly digital 21st century. On a global gold standard, gold is the final settlement layer. And again, it's only used to settle net differences. You don't ship $100 million worth of gold to the US and then ship $90 million gold back to, the U back to Germany. And this is insured by the physicality of gold and how expensive it is, how heavy it is, how bulky it is, etc. Instead, you net out the difference and then you just settle that $10 million trade imbalance piece only. Now, gold does offer very strong final settlement guarantees. Once that $10 million worth of physical gold is in a vault in Frankfurt, there's nothing that the U.S. can do to reverse the transaction short of sending missiles, ground soldiers, etc. So physical gold, physical gold is a bare asset. It has zero counterparty risk. When you hold it in your hand or you hold it in a vault that you control and have the keys to, it's yours and no one can freeze it or otherwise, quote unquote, turn it off. By contrast, stocks, bonds, including government bonds like U.S. Treasuries, are not bearer assets. They can easily be frozen and as such, they don't function well as settlement assets or settlement as a settlement mechanism. Gold held in a bank or vault in another country can also be frozen. So gold is not a bearer asset unless you maintain possession of it. If you own the GLD, the gold ETF, you do not own gold as a bearer asset. You're reliant on many, many counterparty risks, including the ETF issuer and whoever is the custodian for the gold. And this is true, of course, for the Bitcoin ETF as well. Gold held by someone else is not a bearer asset. Russia knows very well how this works because the gold that they had within their own borders, they were able to keep everything else outside. They could be turned off and frozen, was frozen as part of the sanctions against them. On a gold standard, the base layer asset is physical gold, gold bars. And the base layer network is bank vaults, boats, airplanes, armored trucks, etc. On a US dollar fiat, fiat US dollar standard, the base layer asset is US dollars and US treasuries. The problem with this, US dollars can be freely printed by the Fed in unlimited quantities, so it's not a very good settlement asset for other countries who are not in charge of US monetary policy because what they're holding becomes like a melting ice cube. Also US treasuries obviously denominated in US dollars. These are US government bonds. They're backed by nothing other than a promise to repay possibly future tax revenues plus 
the U.S., of course, has access to a U.S. dollar money printer that can be used to dilute your wealth in the process of repaying you, paying back that principal of the U.S. treasuries that you're holding. So on a U.S. fiat dollar standard, the base layer asset is U.S. dollars or treasuries, and the base layer network is Fedwire. Fedwire, when you send a wire transfer, you're either using Fedwire or the updated version FedNow. This is how you send U.S. dollars when you want to make sure that a large U.S. dollar amount gets somewhere safely, and when the receiver wants to be sure that the transaction cannot be reversed. And this is what we refer to by strong final settlement guarantees that the money has actually settled. So for example, you use Fedwire when you want to send in the down payment for a house. You don't use Fedwire when you want to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks. It's basically impossible to reverse a wire transfer what has been, once it's been sent. This is what we mean by strong final settlement guarantees. A transaction cannot be reversed. So in sending a wire, you need to double check and triple check the wiring instructions. And if you've ever bought a house, you know how this works and they'll tell you all about wire fraud, etc. because these are final settlement transactions. They're essentially impossible to reverse. If you enjoyed this video so far, I just ask you to hit the subscribe button. That really helps the channel and its reach and my educational mission. Hit the like button, leave a comment, question, suggestion for a future topic, and also share this video with a family member or friend. Someone I know mailed a, a $200,000 check to a relative. That check was intercepted in the mail and cashed by a thief, and now the money is permanently gone. This also helps to highlight the importance of safe and secure payment rails. And the person who mailed the check was too cheap to spend $35 on a wire transfer. What's the result? The $200,000 is gone forever. So when moving large amounts of money, you want safe and secure payment rails. And also the recipient usually wants very strong final settlement guarantees. When you buy a house, you use a wire transfer because the escrow company and the seller don't want you to be able to easily reverse the transaction, take your money back and still have the keys and the title to the house. So that's why you use wire transfers for that kind of final settlement. When you buy a house, you use a wire transfer. When you buy a cup of coffee, you don't use a wire transfer, but rather a credit card. It's interesting to think why about why this is. To begin with, a good cup of coffee itself costs only about $5. We're just maybe rounding up a little bit, while a wire transfer costs $35, usually $35, $40. So the fee would be something like 7x or 8x the price of the item itself, the price of the cup of coffee. So that would make sense from a transaction fee perspective. And other reasons you don't use a wire transfer to buy a cup of coffee, wire transfers take hours to settle, so they're a little too slow. Starbucks does not require strong final settlement guarantees when selling you a cup of coffee. If you file charge back with your credit card, you say, I never had that coffee, please credit it back. You'll almost always get it credited back. And in that case, Starbucks is not out $5 apart from just the opportunity cost. They're probably only out like 20 or 50 cents, whatever the cost of the paper cut, plus the coffee, plus the labor, plus the opportunity cost, whatever that is. And so it doesn't make sense. They don't really care if you file a charge back because most people don't file a charge back for a $5 cup of coffee. And it's ultimately much better for Starbucks to just increase the volume of customers served by making payments fast and easy. You can just swipe your credit card, move on and collect your coffee. And then if one out of 500 customers does do a chargeback, Starbucks still comes out ahead because they've made payment processing so fast for all of their customers, they've increased the volume. So if one out of 500 tends to be a bad apple, they'll still come out ahead in terms of profits. By contrast, when you buy a house, for example, in the US, you need to use a wire transfer, as we said, to send your down payment to the title escrow company. This type of payment, as we said, requires very strong final settlement guarantees. The money needs to be in the escrow account and fully settled with no possibility 
of reversal. So wire transfer cannot be reversed. Credit card, easy to reverse, easy to do a chargeback, also cheaper to send. So on a gold standard, as we said, the base layer asset is physical gold, and we the base layer network is all these bank vaults and boats, airplanes, armored trucks. On a fiat US dollar standard, the base layer asset is US dollars, and the base layer network is Fedwire that's used to settle large and important transactions. On a Bitcoin standard, the base layer asset, of course, is BTC, and the base layer network is the Bitcoin network, this network of nodes, of mining nodes, and non-mining nodes spread all around the world. That is the base layer network for Bitcoin. Like physical gold, Bitcoin is a bare asset, zero counterparty risk, cannot be frozen or turned off, zero counterparty risk if you hold your own keys and thus control the Bitcoin. Also, like physical gold, Bitcoin is scarce. It cannot be printed up by politicians and bankers. In fact, now its supply is increasing at a much lower rate than gold or it will be after the halving. So Bitcoin is technically scarcer than gold. Unlike physical gold, Bitcoin can be sent globally using digital communication channels. This is very, very important in a digital age of trade. Unlike physical gold, Bitcoin is also very easy to subdivide, very easy to assay and to verify that it's genuine. So that's BTC, the asset. BTC, the network, the Bitcoin network is a global monetary network that allows you to move Bitcoin around, offering very high security and very strong final settlement guarantees. Bitcoin transactions that have been included in the blockchain are impossible to reverse. Call it after three to six blocks or 30 to 60 minutes. After six blocks, your transaction will never be reversed because the blockchain cannot be rewritten that far back. Bitcoin network is equivalent to Fed, Fedwire for US dollars and boats, airplanes, armored trucks for physical gold. The Bitcoin network, like Fedwire and like the global gold network, is intended for moving around large amounts of money safely and also settling net transactions that require strong final settlement guarantees. In other words, transactions that need not to be reversed or mustn't be reversed. So for example, you don't use an armored truck to send $20 across the country. Likewise, you don't use Fedwire to buy a cup of coffee. Instead, you use a credit card. Then your transaction is batched with thousands or millions of other people's transactions. At the end of the month, you pay off your credit card. Then after 90 to 120 days, I forget the exact amount, the money is moved between your credit card's bank and Starbucks bank, for example, using ACH or using Fedwire to settle up all the batch transactions that have taken place in the past few months. So we can see here how the US dollar is scaling from Fedwire from the base network all the way up to credit cards for consumer convenience. Credit cards used for relatively small purchases that can be reversed. Fedwires for settling large net transactions that mustn't be reversed and that ha must have strong final settlement guarantees. It's okay if your credit card coffee transaction gets reversed. It's not okay if a $10 million settlement payment between banks gets reversed. The knock-on effect of that on consumers and everyone who's involved in the net settlement would be completely disastrous and would it would probably uh, be the same as theft. If you're complaining that you cannot buy a cup of coffee with Fedwire by sending a wire transfer, the problem is not with Fedwire, but rather the problem is with you. Likewise, I'd say, and I say this with much love, if you're complaining that it costs you $35 to send $5 on the Bitcoin network, the problem is not with the Bitcoin network. The problem is probably with you. You've been spoiled by the very low fees on the Bitcoin network, the very low transaction fees of the past 15 years, and have perhaps mistaken the Bitcoin network as a place to cheaply settle small transactions. 
Instead, if you want to send $5 worth of Bitcoin, you should probably send it over the Lightning Network at most times or other payment rails, other layer two solutions instead. So just like with Fedwire and the US dollar and also under the gold standard, different Bitcoin payment rails for different uses. On-chain base layer transactions for larger transactions that require strong final settlement guarantees and are willing to pay higher transaction fees to get those final settlement guarantees. Lightning Network for smaller transactions where final settlement guarantees matter less, but where it's important that fees are low and payments are fast. And it's important to note here, a lot of ship coiners, a lot of altcoiners don't understand this very basic fact. Fast payments does not automatically imply fast settlements. For example, credit cards are fast, but the transactions can be easily reversed. Venmo is fast, but the transactions can be easily reversed. Bitcoin blockchain online is slower, on-chain is slower, but it cannot be reversed. And Bitcoin offers the best settlement guarantees of any proof-of-work cryptocurrency out there. Proof-of-work, proof-of-stake is a complete joke, so we just focus on proof-of-work. And we can see here that Dogecoin, its settlement times are 20x slower, even though its block times are faster. Litecoin, I believe, has block times of two and a half minutes, so four times as fast as Bitcoin in terms of block block time, but its settlement guarantees are 16x slower because it's easier to rewrite the chain. Bitcoin Cash, for example, BCH, which is a failed fork of Bitcoin, its transaction uh, settlement time is 244 times slower. Ethereum Classic, 41 times slower. Even Monero, 224 times slower. So when you're comparing Bitcoin and Monero, you're not even comparing apples and oranges. Monero has very slow final settlement time. So all monetary systems, whether it's gold, US dollars, Bitcoin, scale and layers, base layers for larger transactions that need to be sent in a super secure manner and that require strong final settlement guarantees. Higher layers are for faster, cheaper transactions. Those higher layer transactions are then batched up, netted out, and eventually settled on the base layer. So for example, you can send millions of payments back and forth across a Lightning Network payment channel and then when the channel is closed at the end of the day or after many months or years, you can settle the net result a few months or years later by closing that lightning channel and settling the net result on the base layer. Base layer is for settlement. Higher layers are for lots of economic activity. And you should never try to do everything at the base layer on chain on the blockchain itself as big blockers like Bcashers and BSV people advocate for or what you end up with is a very bloated blockchain it's much more difficult to download to verify to hold the utxo set in ram and to do all of these other things this is why bitcoin has opted for smaller blocks and a less bloated blockchain if the blockchain becomes too bloated and too difficult to verify people will stop running their own nodes and outsource it to large corporations for example like ethereum does the storage needed to run an archival node on ethereum is about 12 terabytes and then to verify everything requires enormous processing power so people use infura instead which is a privately held company that's owned by one of the co-founders of Ethereum, huge conflict of interest, Joe Lubin. And when Infura goes down, Ethereum infrastructure begins to crumble. So this is the problem with having a bloated blockchain and making it too difficult for, for individuals, for small node operators like you and I to run nodes. You don't want the nodes of your monetary network to be run in large data centers by Infura, by Google, by Amazon, by Microsoft, or you risk corporate or government capture 
of the system. And this is really what's happened with Ethereum. Most Ethereum people, if you ask them, they do not run nodes, whereas many, many Bitcoiners run nodes. Bitcoin community has made a conscious decision to keep the base layer manageable and not let it grow out of control. For example, the blockchain for Bitcoin is currently at about 615 gigabytes. When you compare that to the big blockers who opted for larger blocks, no one even uses BSV anymore, but somehow the blockchain has become enormous. It's over 10 million gigabytes, so no one can really run a BSV node anymore. Conclusion, money always scales in layers. Not everything should be done on the base layer. If you do everything on the base layer, you end up with monstrosities like BSV or Ethereum. Most economic activity should not be done at the base layer. It should take place at higher layers, get batched and netted out before settling on the base layer. So what will ensure, what economically will ensure that Bitcoin follows the same path? I think it's probably increasingly higher transaction fees, which are a function of limited block space. These higher transaction fees at the base layer, they encourage more and more people and entities to move their economic activity to higher layers and different payment rails with different security and settlement guarantees, as well as different fee structures. It'll be more expensive to transact on chain. It'll be less expensive to transact at a higher layer or different payment rail like a Lightning Network, for example. I expect Bitcoin will scale in both custodial and non-custodial ways. And a lot of Bitcoiners do not want to hear this, but I still think it's true. And we have no control over exactly how this happens. We can decide what we do in our own lives, but we can't tell people, for example, not to make an ETF out of Bitcoin or not to use Bitcoin in a custodial manner. All we can do is educate them about the trade-offs and the risks of trusting a custodian. Nevertheless, many people will use custodial solutions for Bitcoin. They'll use Cash App, Apple Pay, Google Pay, especially when all these companies start using Bitcoin and incorporating it into their apps. Cash App already does. I don't, I don't think Apple Pay and Google Pay do. I don't use them, so I'm not sure. PayPal, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, BlackRock, a lot of names here we don't necessarily like, Coinbase, will use Bitcoin in their apps and they'll settle with each other on chain or using the Lightning Network. And a lot of people will interact with these big corporations and then those corporations will settle these transactions. They'll batch them up, they'll net them out as we talked about with gold, for example, and they'll settle them either using the Lightning Network or on chain payments. They'll be essentially batching up transactions and net settling them in the same way that physical gold used to be sent across the world on boats and airplanes. If you don't like this custodial reality, and I certainly don't, though I do expect it to emerge, there will still be non-custodial self-sovereign Bitcoin usage. You'll still be available to many people as well. It's very important to get Bitcoin while it's still affordable if you want to be able to continue to use it on-chain. If you're wasting your time trading Bitcoin, if you're wasting your, your time uh, trading ship coins, don't complain when you're no longer a citizen who can transact on-chain in Bitcoin because you finally came over too late and your UTX or so, UTXOs are too small or the size of your holdings are too small. Non-custodial self-sovereign Bitcoin usage will still be available to many people as well. And these people will use on-chain only for really big and important transactions like moving your Bitcoin retirement savings from one address, maybe from a single SIG address to a multi-SIG address, for example, as I talk about in my course. And then people will use self-custodial Lightning payments, Lightning wallets like Phoenix, which we're going to talk about in a later video to send and receive Bitcoin for everyday payments. People will join a Fediment, which we talked about a little bit on this channel. We're going to talk about more. It's basically a federation that holds Bitcoin and then issues eCash tokens against it, Chami and eCash tokens, and it has very low fees and very, very good privacy. And so people, some people use Lightning, some people 
will use Ephediment and Lightning and use Ephediment to pay people using Charming eCash tokens backed by Bitcoin. Who will run these Ephediments? People that you trust in real life. What about the Bitcoin ethos of Don't Trust Verify? Bitcoiners actually already employ trust all the time in every area of their lives. Of course, the gold standard is Bitcoin on-chain storage, on-chain usage, verify, and don't trust. But otherwise, serious Bitcoiners trust other people every day. You trust your Uber driver, whom you've never met before, who's driving 75 miles an hour and weaving in and out of traffic, and he can end your life in three seconds, whether on purpose or accidentally. You trust your airplane pilot. You trust that Boeing has built a safe airplane and that the airlines have done proper maintenance on that plane. You trust that your waiter and the chef at the restaurant haven't poisoned your food. So I think Bitcoin's future will involve a series of interoperable and interlocking custodial and non-custodial solutions, both at the base layer and on higher layers. Not everyone will do everything on-chain at the base layer, but the base layer is the foundation on which we're going to rebuild the world. And it's gonna be a much better world than the current one, which trusts corrupt bankers and corrupt politicians and corrupt central bankers. Wanted to wish you all a happy MLK Junior Day and thank you for watching this video. If you enjoyed this video, be sure to hit that subscribe and like buttons. Hit the notification bell if you wanna be notified when I publish my next video. And let me know your questions and comments in the comment section below. Thanks all for watching and I'll see you in the next video.